started a, a new series that's designed to help us to know God. And, uh, and really the series is designed to help us to know Him in two ways, both from an intellectual basis and also from an emotional or relational one as well. You know, you can know about someone and yet not get to know them on a personal level. You know, it was Job, it was Job actually who said, you know, Lord, I have heard of you, but now I have finally seen you face to face. If you remember the story of the Queen of Sheba, who uh, heard of the wisdom of Solomon and all of his splendor, and had heard of his reputation, and so she had set about to go visit him and just see if everything she had heard about him was true. And when she got there, it said that this, her spirit was diminished within her because it, oh, it was overwhelming to her that not only what she had heard about Solomon... She heard everything of his wealth and all of his wisdom and his knowledge and everything. Not only that what she had heard, but what she had now seen exceeded everything that she had heard. And quite often that's the case. And yet not oftentimes in our lives is that true. We hear of a person's reputation or we hear of something about them. When we get to meet them, well, it's not quite what we thought it was going to be. But in the case of God, many of us have heard of God. We think we believe in God. Or we believe things that we've heard about him. And yet from a personal standpoint, we haven't really accommodated that in our own lives. So we can know of something intellectually and yet not know of something experientially. You cannot maybe... Or what reverse is true, which is quite interesting about God, is that you can, have, you can have come to a personal knowledge of God and have experienced his love and his forgiveness that's found in the person of Christ... You can be, according to the Bible, born again into the kingdom of God. You can be a child of God and yet know nothing about God, which is fascinating to me. And there are many of us who are either in one or the other category. And then there are some that are actually in the category of not only do we know who we believe in and know why we believe him, but we also know that we are a child of God. So what we're trying to do through this series is to come to know God on a personal and also an intellectual basis so that we can begin to address questions that either we have asked of ourselves or have had people ask of us. For example, does God really exist? We spoke on that a couple of weeks ago. How do, and if God really exists, how could you demonstrate to someone else that you know God exists and you know why he exists? How would you prove the existence of God? If God exists, how does he communicate with us? And many times, much of the information that we have about God, as far as our knowledge of God, comes from the Bible. And so we'll quote from the Bible, well, the Bible says this about God, the Bible says this about heaven, the Bible says this about hell, the Bible says this about forgiveness, the Bible says this about a person of Jesus Christ, the Bible says this about the works and the resurrection of Christ, the Bible says, the Bible says, you know, Billy Graham, the Bible says, and, and, and it's true, the Bible does say, but why should I trust the Bible? Why should I rely upon the Bible? If we're going to quote the Bible as a source of information as to why we believe in God, why we believe what we say we believe, then we better know why we should trust the Bible. Some of the other topics that we'll get into are things like, well, how does God speak to us? God told me, you'll hear people say. God spoke to me. Well, how do I know God spoke to you? How do I really know it was God who spoke to you? How do I know what he said to you? And how do I know whether it wasn't just some dream that you had, some, some imagination that you have, or the pepperoni pizza that you had the night before that was speaking to you? How do I know it was God, not pepperoni? See, I mean, that's a valid question. God spoke to me. Well, how does he? Is God a real person? 
Or is God that force that we hear of so often in the movies today? You know, the force be with you. Well, what is, the, is God a person? Is he personal? Is he a force? Is he a spirit? Is he, what, you know, is he he or she? Or what, what, is, you know, what are we talking about? Who is God? When is God's birthday? That's a great question. I had a guy in one of our studies that we did with the Rams several years ago just scratching his head. We were going through the book of Genesis and his head hurt and, he was, and I can tell it hurt. He was scratching and he was looking he was squinting. You know how some, some, sometimes I see that in some of you, but I'm not sure if it's a question you have on your mind or the person sitting next to you. But, but the point is he's like, what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and we're going through it. And then finally it was like, and it was like, you know, there's 15 of us in a little apartment at UCI. So it wasn't like, it wasn't, it was easy to see his hand. I see your hand there, sir. <laughs> You're right in front of my face. And he said, who made God? That's a good question. And some of us go, what? But that's a great question. Where did God come from? Who made him? Good question. We'll talk about that. You have to come another day. You know, how powerful is God? Is God all-powerful or is he limited? Where is God? Is he in heaven? Does he have a house there? Is he here? Is he with us? I mean, where is God? Is he powerful? Is he limited? Can I trust him? Is he trustworthy? I mean, there's a lot of questions that we need to ask about God. Does God really care about me? Think about all the people in the world and all the, the, the things that are going on around the world. And, and, and does God really care about me? Does God really care about my problems? When other people around me don't even recognize that they're problems or they minimize them and say, you think you got problems? Let me tell you what a problem is. So I kind of go, God, does, I mean, God, does he care about my problems? And the question that all of us have to ask, how can I get to know him? How can I know him personally? If he is a person that truly can be known in a relational way, like we can get to know one another. Those are all good questions. And you'll have to come back, because we're not talking about any of those today. <laughs> what we're going to talk about today is the question that we started to discuss last week. And, you know, and, it's, and it's very appropriate that we do so, because the question was, why trust the Bible? Why should I trust the Bible? And we don't really have to dim the lights very much to see the overheads because we're not going to do much on the overhead. And actually, I like it where it's bright because then you'll have a tendency to feel that you can't really close your eyes and sleep uh, like you can when it's dark. So anyway, here's where we're at. Why trust the Bible? That's the question that we started to ask. And, and the first thing that we looked at was we trust it because we have to recognize its identity. How does the Bible identify itself? So you got your Bibles turned to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, and listen to what Jesus has to say concerning what he calls the scriptures. Matthew 21, starting with verse 33. <clears throat> and while you're turning, I just want to remind you that I did say the Rams were going to beat the Giants. Anyway... Um, oh, that was, that's just, you know, that was just, there was, there was dead air there. There was a little pause you were turning, and, and so I just thought I'd throw that out. Excuse me? Well, they're not playing the Giants today. <laughs> but if you mean, will they beat the Saints today? Oh, absolutely. All right. 
Matthew chapter 21, starting with verse 33, we read this. Jesus says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it. He dug a wine press in it. He built a tower and rented out to vine growers. And then he went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves, beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent a son to them saying, they will certainly respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? That was the question that Jesus posed to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. And it was a very good question. It was a story that he painted to help them understand something that was true of their lives. And he said, what do you think that landowner will do to those who killed his son and also killed his slaves and his servants? And this was their answer. Well, they said, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures? Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. He was speaking to religious leaders who were certainly aware of the scriptures, which he called those ancient writings, that which was put in write, written form. He said, have you never re read the scriptures? Have you never read the part in the Psalms, for example, and this is what he quoted from Psalm 118. Have you never read that the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone? Have you never read this? And so, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and will be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Now, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking directly to them. And as a result, they sought to seize him, but they feared the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. What Jesus did in a very short story was tell them exactly what they had done to all of God's servants. He said, have you not read, did you not know that God sent to you his messengers to proclaim the truth to you? The messengers, that which was written in 2,000 times in the Old Testament in those ancient writings, it says, thus saith the Lord. In the book of Jeremiah, several times the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord. It says in Isaiah, the Lord said to me, often and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, you will find the words, thus saith the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to me. And then it was spoken through the messengers. What he was saying and reminding them was, God sent his word through his messengers to you to tell you of his plan for you. And you rejected his messengers. They were the servants that went into the vineyard and you took them and you killed them because you didn't like what they had to say. So finally, God said, certainly, if I send my son, they won't reject him. Now, will they? And so he sent his only son. And the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. 
that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And so he said, and I sent my son. And Jesus, quoting from the scriptures, saying to them, I am that chief cornerstone. God had told you that I'm coming and now I am here. And yet you will reject me. And because you will reject me, the promise that God had for you, the nation of Israel, will be taken from you and he will give that land or that promise to another. And in this case, he was speaking of the church that was to come. The nation of Israel rejected the chief cornerstone and they understood what he was saying because the Pharisees said they knew that he was talking about them. How did Jesus validate what he was saying? He took that which had been written hundreds and sometimes thousands of years before that moment in time and said, this is what God was telling you about. The validity of the scripture, or why should I trust the Bible, has to do with its identity. And it was identified by Jesus himself as being that which was the word of God. He used it to confirm the historicity of what we were, to, we were to come to believe, and that is that the Bible was a reliable source of information. At this particular time, he was quoting from the Old Testament. But if you'll turn with me in the book of Luke, for example, I'll show you in Luke chapter 24 that Jesus validated and confirmed the Scripture as being coming from God. Luke 24, look at verses 44 through 48. In Luke 24, starting with verse 44, we read this. Now Jesus said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while still with you, that all things which are, here we go again, written about me, speaking of the scriptures, which is plural, a, a, a number of writings. He said, These are my words which I spoke to you while still with you, that all things which are written about me, and notice what he says, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds so that they would understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his, names, his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. He said, in essence, to his disciples that that which was written in the what we would call the Old Testament and he goes through and he breaks it out into the sections that we have. The law of Moses, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms or the writings. And what he was doing was he clearly validated that the Old Testament books that we see now and that they had at the time were clearly from the mouth of God. And he validated that by saying the law, the prophets, and the writings all testify from the mouth of God. That these things which were written about me would come to pass. And he specifically talked about his death and his resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, sometime when you have a chance, read it because it says specifically this about Jesus' death and resurrection. That he suffered according to the scriptures. That he died according to the scriptures. That he ascended into heaven according to the scriptures. Why is that so important? Because it indicates to us that what God said about the future, he was willing to put in writing and put his reputation on the line to prove that he was truly God and to prove that he truly understood what was to come in very minute detail so that we would know he is trustworthy because the word of God is exactly that, the word directly from the mouth of God. 
and he would put it into written form so that we could challenge him to see, is that really what it said? And that's why Jesus often said to religious leaders, hey, haven't you read? Isn't it written? You go check it out. Dig it up. Take a look at it. Didn't Isaiah say this 800 years ago? Is it just a coincidence that this is happening exactly as he said that it would, as he represented God, as he put this in written form? You see, the Bible is the written word of God. The scriptures, which is plural, is external evidence that we can use to validate that the Bible is a trustworthy document because it's just not one book, but it's a collection of many books. When you take a look at the fact that there are 66 books that were written over 1,500 years by 40 different people, as diverse, and we'll talk about that in a second, as you'll ever see a group of people be, and have yet a continuity of thought and purpose and plan, revealing to us who God is, what His plan is, who we are in light of who God is, and what His plan is for you and I as human beings, uh, it's phenomenal. Why should we believe the Bible? Jesus sums it up best in the book of John. Turn with me to John chapter 17. John 17, Jesus clearly tells us why we should trust the Bible. John 17, verses 14 through 17, we read this. He says, I have given them thy word. He was in his prayer to to the Father. He says, I've given them thy word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even, even as I am not of the world. And I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. What? For your word is truth. Your word is truth. I want you to stop and think about that for a moment, because we've just come from doing a series of moral relativism. We have come as we've examined what goes on in our culture around us and we begin to realize that we are suffering in a culture today that does not know absolute truth any longer. That truth is relative to the person at the time in which they're going through something. But what Jesus said about truth is, He said, God, the Father, Your Word is truth. Absolute truth. It's not morally relative. It doesn't change with the ages. It is absolute truth for all of eternity. And it's important that we understand that because in our culture today, we don't have an understanding of absolute truth. Listen to what C.S. Lewis writes. In the screw tape letters, he writes this, speaking of the devil's henchman tempting his patient on earth. He says he is, he's advised not to talk about truth and falsehood because people don't operate on that basis any longer. He says, but rather talk about what is useful or what is practical. That's the way to get through, says the devil. Well, Francis Schaeffer wasn't quite as philosophical. He got right to the point. He says this. He says, unlike previous generations, people, though they speak of truth and falsehood, are not speaking of truth in a biblical sense or even in a traditional sense to mean that what is true now will always be true universally. Rather, they mean that what is true now... Uh, I'm sorry, but what is true now, but not necessarily tomorrow or yesterday? Or it is true for me, but not necessarily for you. In other words, truth for contemporary men and women is highly relative. Well, that may be true for... See, you hear this. That may be true for you, but that's not true for me. Oh, really? Was gravity true for you and for me? I mean, are there absolutes still that we can look at and say, no, those things are equally true of all of us? 
But see, for some reason or another, we've gotten to the point in our culture where that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Well, no, truth is truth for all of us. Now, whether we will believe and accept that truth or not is a whole different situation. But I'll tell you this, that the consequences of that truth are equally valid for anyone and everyone, whether you believe it to be true or not believe it to be true. If you had, for example, if your boss came to you and said, if you do not do this, you know, you have an evaluation or whatever, if you do not do these certain things, then I'm afraid that at the end of this period of time that we'll have to terminate your employment here. And you go, well, that may be truth for you, but that's not truth for me. You know what I'm saying? You know, and so you go about doing the things that you did before, and you don't, you know, you don't honor what was, was told that you needed to do. And so at the end of the two weeks, then truth becomes very relative, doesn't it? But it was absolute because you were told it was absolute. You, told what it, you were told what it was. You were told what the consequences or end result would be. And yet, we still have this mentality that says, well, that's truth for you, but not necessarily for me. No, truth is absolute. And what Jesus was trying to get across is, this is truth for all of us. Whether you accept it or believe it or not, that's another issue, but truth is truth. That's why Jesus in John 14, 6, when asked what is truth by Pilate, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man will come to the Father but through me. Absolute truth. The way, the truth. Absolute truth of God. And the life. And no man will come to the Father but through me. You say, well, that's true for you, but not for me. No, truth is truth for all. And so as we look at this, we'll, ta- we'll take a look in a second. Because see, you know what? See, that standard, that objective standard is what sets us free. And I'll, and I'll tell you what I mean by that as we go through it. And it's important to understand it. Because without parameters or objective standards, then we are really in bondage because we don't know how to live our lives. We go on a moral roller coaster ride. Well, it's okay today, but it's not tomorrow. See, you know, what's really interesting to me is I'll show you how silly some of this stuff is, and it kind of breaks down. You take a person who finds out, let's use this as an illustration, okay? Um, and, it's, and it's real close to home. I met with someone recently, and this is what was going on. Um, you got a person who is, is uh, having an affair. They're, they're cheating on their spouse, and they say, well... You know, you don't understand. You don't understand what's going on in my life. You don't understand all the problems we're having. You don't understand how difficult it's been. You don't understand. You don't understand. And so it's like, oh, okay, fine. So it's okay because of what you're going through. Now, this is the same person that a year or two before that was dealing with another friend who was doing the same thing that said, don't you understand that that's wrong? Well, why isn't it wrong anymore? Well, because now that person is guilty of the same thing. Therefore, it can no longer be wrong. Otherwise, it'd have to admit what they were doing was wrong. So now it is not truth anymore that that act or that that thing would be wrong because now we're guilty of it, so therefore it becomes morally relative and it's not truth any longer. We see that happening all around us. Something is true as long as we're not guilty of it because we can see how true it really is, but when we become partakers of it, it's no longer true. And say, no, don't you understand? This is the exact same thing you told me two years ago when you were dealing with another friend that was dealing with the same problem in their their life, and you said, no, wait, you you can't do that because that's wrong. Well, now it's not wrong anymore? Well, yeah, I guess I was wrong when I said it was wrong. You see, you see how goofy, I mean, we get so confused and it gets, it gets ludicrous. Or it's like, okay, it's okay for that person to do it, but it's not okay for this person to do it. Or, okay, it may be okay today, but it wasn't okay yesterday. And you know what? And it's wrong today, but if I, I'm guilty of it tomorrow, then it probably won't be wrong tomorrow. How can you live like that? 
See, truth is absolute. The standard is objective. And we begin to measure our life versus the standard and not change the standard to measure the way that we live. So as we look at this, we need to understand, why can I trust the Bible? Because of its identity. It was identified by Jesus, number one, and it clearly identifies itself all throughout that it is the Word of God. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this reason, we constantly thank God that when you receive from us the Word of God's message, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you Who believe. You see what Paul was saying? He said, when I spoke and I delivered to you God's message, I unrolled the scrolls and I read out what God had to say. I spoke these things to you and I pointed it out for what it was. It wasn't my word, but it was God's word that was being spoken to you. And you saw it for what it really was. It's the very word of God. How do we know it was the Word of God? Because those of you who accepted it as the Word of God and believed it to be the Word of God, God worked through His Word in your life and performed miraculous things in your life. Great illustration. You have people out here talking about shepherd groups, problems in their marriage. And as it's revealed to them what God has to say about love and about marriage and about commitment and about uh, cherishing one another and building each other up and encouraging one another. And you accept it as truth from the word from God's word. And it says, this is what God says about my marriage. Then that is what I need to do. And you know what? Miraculous things happen. Why? Because it's the word of God that's powerful. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the gospel that's powerful. It changes lives. It changes direction. It changes course of human destiny. People that are messed up and totally screwed up when they accept God's word for what it is, God miraculously works through his word and he changes lives. I mean, why should I believe the Bible? Because it's identified as the Word of God. Why should I believe that it's true? Because I see the evidence of the change that takes place in the lives of people as they embrace it and accept it for what it is. When they say, God, your Word says this, then that's what I'm going to do. If your Word says stop doing this, then that's what I'm going to stop doing and I'm going to start doing this. And when I do what God says to do, my life changes. And always for the better fascinating. But that's what Paul said. 1 Peter 1, 22-25, a different writer says this, All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass, grass withers, the flower falls off, but the Word of God abides forever. And this is the Word which was preached to you. See, so you know, there's only two things that last forever. People and the Word of God. It's eternal. So stop and think about it. Why should I trust the Bible? Because it identifies itself all throughout as the Word of God. It's God's voice. It's authoritative. It's trustworthy. It's eternal. It never changes. It's reliable. It's truth. It's life. Jesus quoted from it to validate it as being the Word of God. And if I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus is God's Son in human flesh, and that Jesus is my Lord and my Savior, and He quotes from Scripture, then I can be very much comforted in the fact that I know that He knows that it's the Word of God. And He affirms that. But the problem that we have is, now some of us say, well, you know what, I can trust God, but I don't know if I can trust people. I don't know if I can trust men. I don't know if I can trust the people who wrote down what we have in this book as to whether or not they were accurate in what they went about. And that's why we need to look at one other thing. The second point is that we, need to, we trust the Bible because it's inerrancy. Which means what? It's not wrong. It doesn't make any mistakes. 
When you look at the Bible, the Bible specifically, as we go through it, it is, it's inerrancy. And there's three terms that you need to commit to memory. Somewhere along the line, they'll be very helpful. But three terms. Revelation, inspiration, and illumination. How does God reveal himself to you and I? How does he reveal himself? We will talk about that in two weeks. But how does God communicate with us? That's a good point. How does he reveal himself? If God exists, how does he reveal himself to us? Good point. We'll take a look at that. Now, one of the ways that he reveals himself is through the Bible. He reveals himself in written form through the Bible. Okay, that's part of his revelation to us. Inspiration is that which is written occurred when the writers received and recorded God's truth. You follow me? Illumination is whenever God's truth is spoken, it reveals something in my life that God says, hey, you know what? You're wrong in this area or you need to do this in that area. And it illuminates the word is a lamp under my feet and a light under my path. It illuminates and exposes in my life what God wants me to see so that I can deal with it in a way that's pleasing to God. And that's why this, is, this always cracks me up. That's why when you're, when you're going through and you're having a Bible study and you open the Word of God and you start to teach it, you look at a passage and then you'll have someone say something like, He's speaking to me. I had two guys, we did a chapel last week. Two guys that came up to me afterwards and they said, Man, you were speaking to me. How'd you know what I was going through? You were speaking to me. And I saw him during chapel. I saw one guy look at the other and go, go Is he speaking to me? And the other guy's like, No, I think he's speaking to me. And they came up to me afterwards after the game. We had dinner together. They said, you were, how'd you know what I was going through? And I was like, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. He goes, no, did somebody tell you what I'm going through? Did my wife tell you? That's always favorite one. It's kind of like, you know, every Bible study on marriage, it's always like the guy going like, did my wife tell you to say that? You know what? See, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to, to discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It's able to separate the bone from the marrow. See, the Word of God illuminates our life. The Word of God is living, and when it is taught, and when it is preached, and when it is read, and when it is studied, it goes out and it illuminates things in our life as to what we're doing that's wrong before God. See, why do I believe or why should I trust the Bible? You know what? Because it is, it's inerrancy means that it is not wrong. And in fact, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 16 will help us to understand it. Listen to what, uh, what Paul wrote as he said, You, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from the childhood, from your childhood, you have known the Scriptures, which were able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ for all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequately equipped for all good works. Inspiration has to do with the, the, the words where God breathed. The, the very act of God by which He directly controlled the writers so that what was written was from God without error. Without error. There's no mistakes. Now, it's interesting if you think about all the different personalities. I mean, think about this. You got David, who was a king, but he was also a shepherd boy. You got Peter. You got Paul. You got John. You got Luke, who was a doctor. You got Amos. You got Daniel, who was a prime minister. You got Isaiah. You got Solomon, who was a king. You've got all these people that wrote the Word of God. How did God control what they wrote? 
In 2 Peter 1, 19 and 21, it gives us an answer. It says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. Let me interrupt this for a second because some of us think that men sat down and said, Today, I think I'll write about, you know, um, something that's going to happen 800 years from now. I mean, think about this for a moment. I mean, some of us think that Isaiah sat down and said, you know, today I think I'll write about um, crucifixion. That's an interesting idea. I don't even know what it is. I've never heard of it and I've never seen it done. And it's something that won't take place for another six to seven hundred years. I don't even know who Rome is because Rome isn't the world power right now. But, you know, I think I'll write about something the Roman Empire will do to punish uh, criminals. Oh, I know. I come up with the idea of crucifixion. Now, it's absurd, but some people believe that, oh, you know what? You can't trust the Bible because it's written by men. Well, how did a man write about something that he never heard of that would take place at a time and a date and a place in history that he was not sure of and yet do so with 100% accuracy? It's an interesting point. It all goes back to inspiration. See, the Apostle Paul didn't sit down one day and say, you know, I feel like Galatians coming on. I mean, it wasn't something that human beings decided to do. God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, moved. But it says, but men moved by the Spirit of God spoke from God. The word is a nautical term. Movement means it takes a ship that is without any power of its own. And it is moved to and from. It took that God took human authors and used their personality and their background and their experiences. Yet the Spirit of God moved through them to write the words that we have today. See, that's what inerrancy is all about. Knowing that what we have is correct, that it's right. And the only way we can know it is you say, well, how do you know? How do you know that it's right? How do you know? It goes back to reliability. The last thing that we'll look at. It's reliable. The Word of God is reliable. You see, inerrancy means that when all the facts are known, the Scriptures and their original languages and properly interpreted, which you need to come back next week because that's fascinating in and of itself, because, gee, well, how can I read the Bible and, you know, and other people read the Bible and they see something different than I saw and, and, and they say it means something different than I say it means, which has to do with interpretation. We'll talk of that, talk of that particular problem. But, but for those who doubt whether the Bible is reliable, I would challenge them and a- answer this one question. Show me somewhere where it's wrong. That's all. Just show me. I'm not doubting what you're saying, and I understand that you've got questions about the reliability of it, whether it's trustworthy. I understand you have questions about how can you trust people who wrote certain things, and after all, man's not trustworthy, and man is fallible, and man could screw up, and maybe that isn't God's Word. All I can say to them is simply this. You know what? Show me one place, or two, or three, or however many you find. Show me anywhere. Pick them out. Somewhere that God made a mistake. And if you cannot, if you cannot find in a collection of writings by 40 different people over 1,500 years, if you cannot find one mistake that they made, would you not be convinced that there's something highly unique about that writing or that book that you're reading? Absolutely. 
If you could take a collection of, 40, uh, of 66 different books written by 40 different people over 1,500 years and put them all in front of a person who is skeptical and say, here's all these books on all different subjects. You pick them out, anything you want, all throughout human history. Take all these books, put them in front of them and say, find some mistakes. You don't think they can't find some mistakes that were written by human beings and not authored by God? You better believe we can. When do you want to stop? But when somebody sits this in front of me and says, fine, I don't believe that. I say, fine, show me some mistakes. I'm willing to listen. You know why? Because I'm placing all of my faith, all of my trust on who God is and what he said and what he said about the future and what he said about my life, what he said about my eternity. I'm placing all of it on this book. And if it's wrong, I need to know it. But you know what? The Bible is reliable. And why should I trust the Bible? Because of its reliability. Let me give you three things in closing. Three reasons to trust the Bible for its reliability. Number one, Psalm 119. Listen to what it says, verse 98. Psalm 119, 98. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are forever mine. The wisdom that you get from the Word of God is awesome. It's incredible. He goes on and he says, I have more insight I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. You know what God says? He says, Chuck, if you meditate on my word, if you would trust me and believe me and look at this book and study it and meditate on it and make it part of your life, then you will see things that other people will not see. You will see life from a different perspective that other people miss. You will see deeply into the truth and the wisdom of of how to live your life. You see, it's amazing to me when you think about the insights that God gives us, the insights on how to counsel someone with marital difficulties, the insight on how to deal with somebody who's going through financial difficulties, the insight that God gives in every area of life that's so practical and relevant and reliable because the end result when applied according to the way God says apply it is always without failure the best way to go. What amazing insight. You see, the benefits of relying on the Bible is God gives us wisdom and stability through every area of our life. God says, don't check, don't do it. No matter how you feel, no matter what you're struggling with, don't do it. The wisdom that you get. God says, look at this from my point of view. Man, I got insight now that I never had before. And the last thing he says is, you know what? And I love this because he says, I understood more than the aged because I have believed or observed your word. Wisdom. Insight and maturity. I love it. You know what's amazing to me? You can take a young person, say 20 years old, that immerses himself in the Word of God, is a student of God, applies the Word of God, understands what God has to say about different areas of life, and they can outshine a person who's 80 years old and has 60 more experiences here on life, on this earth, that doesn't believe in God and doesn't have the insight that God has to offer and continues to believe foolish things. And you know what? And have much more maturity and more sense in how to live their life than a person who's older. You know what he's saying is, you know what? I, I, I've aged farther than all of those who are older than me. I know more than they do or they'll ever do until they believe you and trust in you. Now, what's amazing is that the older we get, the more experience that we have, and the more experience that we have, the more we recognize and can attest to the fact and testify to what God says is true. Amen? That's the way it is. Man, I wish I would have believed it 20 years ago. Wish I would have believed it 5 years ago. Wish I would have believed it 50 years ago. Because the longer I live and the more I understand the principles of God, the more I realize how timeless and eternal they really are. 
Why do you trust the Bible? I mean, go back to it. It's identity. It is the Word of God in written form. It's inerrancy. There are no mistakes in it. And if you find some, let us all know because we're really interested in knowing what they are. And its reliability is, hey, it's proven to be trustworthy. Now, let me challenge you to consider something. You've seen all the movies. Moses, the Ten Commandments, David and Bathsheba. You've seen all the movies. Isn't it time that you read the book? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you now for your word. We just thank you that it's trustworthy, that it's reliable, that it withstands the test of time, which is really the greatest test of all truth, that it is a reliable source of information that we can count on not only for today, but for all of eternity. And we just thank you that you have given it to us and taken the time to get it into our hands. God, we just praise you and thank you for it, for it is our roadmap. It is, it is our playbook for life. God, you tell us that your word is a lamp unto our feet. It exposes where we are today and a light unto our path as to where we're to go in the future. You tell us that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof and correction. God, there are some of us who aren't living right today and we need to be corrected by the word of God. That your word is alive, it's living and active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It exposes those things in our life that we need to confess and make right before you. God, help us to see the, the power that the Word of God has. God, help us to understand why we trust it so that we can then begin to explain it to those who doubt it and the society in which we live. And we just praise you in Christ's name. Amen.